If you brought your Bible this morning, uh, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25 this morning. <clears throat> this is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church that was in Corinth, which was a Roman colony, and as was typical for Roman colonies, there were many gods that were worshipped in that culture and in that day, and it was also a popular stopping point for traveling professional speakers and debaters and philosophers who would come into town and they would charge people to come hear them speak and to hear their wisdom and their rhetorical skill. They were impressive professional speakers. And here comes the Apostle Paul with his letter, with his rather simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross and salvation by faith, a message which didn't compare in any way to the lofty rhetoric of the wise and the intelligent. So this sets up a contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of men. So let's read the text, 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to start in verse 17. The Apostle Paul says this, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. In our culture, we get excited about the next new thing. The new and the improved thing. The new appliance, the internet-connected refrigerator with the cameras on the inside. Have you seen these? How cool is that? Cameras on the inside of the fridge. You get to the, to the store and you realize, do I have eggs? I don't know if I have eggs and you log into your fridge. I have eggs. I don't need to buy eggs. The new and improved whiz-bang cell phone model with the camera that always makes you look good. The battery-operated winter coat with the heating coils in the fabric. Cars that can drive but also fly. We love that. That is cool. And I still know that some of you still love and long for your rotary phone. I know there's some of you like that. 
And some people get excited about the new theory, the new key to a happy and stress-free life. Or some other new idea or theory they heard on, on Joe Rogan's podcast, and so on. The Apostle Paul dealt with that same sort of mindset as he ministered in Corinth. The people paid money as part of their entertainment to go hear these people speak, to hear someone present some new idea, a new worldview, a new theory of life that encompasses everything, or something that improved their life experience. You know, we pay good money to go see Taylor Swift, or we go see, you know, Nate Bargatze, you know, make us laugh. But they paid money to go hear some rhetorician, the traveling rhetorician. But none of their theories got anywhere close, anywhere close to solving the number one most important issue in every human being, how to be right with our Creator. None of their lofty ideas came anywhere close to the truth. So here's our big idea for this morning. No matter what new ideas may emerge, God has and always will save through faith in the one simple message of the cross. No matter what new ideas may emerge, God has and always will save through faith in the one simple message of the cross. So I want to draw out three important principles in our text for today. The first one is this. Number one, the cross divides mankind into two groups, the saved and the perishing. The cross divides mankind into two groups, the saved and the perishing. And right away, this idea rubs our culture wrong. There aren't just two groups, two groups. There's lots of groups. Pick a group. Be a part of a group. You know, I have my truth, you have your truth, they have their truth. There's a million truths. Pick your group. Actually, there's two groups. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross here is the message of the gospel. The message of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on a Roman cross. And on this cross, Jesus died, and he was buried, and he was resurrected from the dead on the third day. It's the message that God created you, and that God called you to be holy. He called me to be holy, and the problem is we are not holy. Therefore, we are accountable to God for our sins. It's the message that on the cross, though he was personally sinless, Jesus took the judgment for the sins of all who would believe on himself. So that all who would come to him by faith alone would be completely forgiven and saved from judgment. This is the word of the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, you can finish this. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16. This is the message that saves souls. 
This is the means of reconciliation with God. There is no other message anywhere on this planet that saves souls. Verse 18, to us who are being saved, it, the word of the cross, is the power of God. The word of the cross, when it is united by faith in the one who believes, is the power of God to save us, to forgive, to transform all of the lives of who, those who believe. It's the power of God to reconcile you. It's the power of God to ransom you from slavery to sin, to rescue you from judgment and adopt you into God's family. It's the power of God. And sadly, the word of the cross is also the message that so many of the people around us reject and ignore and ridicule or dismiss. Here's the tragic dilemma of the gospel. To so many who desperately need a savior, who need to have their sins forgiven, who need forgiveness, who need deliverance from eternal judgment and hope for the afterlife, to so many who urgently need these things, the message of the cross appears to them to be folly. Foolishness. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And God calls out to you, to those who are scoffing and mocking. He's saying, here's the cure for your most grave disease, the most grave illness that is going to take you down to the grave and into judgment. There is one cure, and I'm offering it to you. I'm not hiding it from you. It's right there in the scriptures. I sent my son for you to die for you, to take your sin and your judgment on himself so that you could be saved. I'm not hiding it from you. It's my son. It's the word of the cross, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they shrug it off as foolishness, stupidity, mythology. They write off anything to do with the gospel. Belief in God to begin with. How do you prove God? Prove God to me. Belief in creation rather than what science teaches us. Sin and accountability to God. What? What's sin? Jesus' virgin birth. What? Who believes that? God coming to earth in the form of a man. That's kind of crazy. Belief in an afterlife. The Bible as true and true for today. The cross, the resurrection, a crucified Messiah. A Messiah executed on a Roman cross. It's a complete contradiction in terms. It's not wisdom, it's nonsense. It's all kind of unsophisticated, isn't it? It's all folly to so many of our friends and family members and neighbors. And I totally get how that can seem hard to believe. Those are pretty extraordinary things, especially to the strict rationalist. But all of those things in that list 
as extraordinary as they may sound, are actually true. They are in fact true, and they constitute the power of God to transform lives from spiritual death to spiritual life, from spiritual darkness to light, to, from damnation to salvation, and the liberation of our souls from slavery to sin. And it would be one thing if someone would just kind of shrug off all of the thousands of religions that are out there, or religion in general. Hey, some people believe in one religion. Some people believe in that other religion. Some people sort of make their own blend of religions. Some people don't believe in any religion. Do what you want. Believe it, reject it, no harm done. Just keep your particular religion to yourself, okay? Let me live my life how I want to live my life. The problem is the perishing part. Verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. God is real. God is who he says he is. And we are fully, 100% accountable to this God. We need to realize that the stakes here are unbelievably high. The fact that they don't believe it does not make it any less true. The fact that they don't believe it doesn't make anything less certain in terms of the outcome. You die in your sin, you're facing judgment, whether you believe it or not. Those who reject this word of the cross are perishing, Paul says. And when Paul talks about perishing, he's not talking about dying. Dying would be one thing. Everybody dies. He's talking about the worst kind of dying, dying without salvation. Those who are perishing are heading towards certain judgment, heading toward eternal destruction on the day of judgment. They are perishing. Paul says in Romans 2, 4 through 5, Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? There's a delay. There's, not everybody is perishing all at once, all right now. But it is surely coming. And then listen very carefully to this next sobering sentence. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That is a frightening sentence. A million years into eternity, it won't matter one bit whether in this life you were rich or you were poor, you were slave or you were free, or you were white or black or Republican or Democrat or American or Chinese or Russian or whatever, far and away, the most important question will be this. Are you reconciled to God or are you not? Are you saved or are you perishing? And way down the road is going to be too late for you to be asking that question. You'll already know. This life is the only life we have. 
to get that settled. It's so important that we understand a couple of things about salvation. Number one, God made a way to be saved. Thank God, right? Hallelujah for that. He didn't have to make a way. That's the incredibly glorious news for every soul. Number two, we need to also understand that God made only one way to be saved. According to Scripture, and that is through the cross. He didn't give us a menu of ways. He didn't say, here's all these other religions. I sent my son to die for you. It was costly to me. But you can be saved in any other kind of way. Pick one. That's ridiculous. And any other way that men and women try to enter a relationship with God, any other way we try to know God apart from Jesus Christ and Him crucified, God not only rejects, but makes it, reveals it, declares it to be foolish. So the first principle is this. The cross has divided mankind into two groups, the saved and the perishing. The second principle is this. God makes worldly wisdom foolish, but the foolishness of God saves. God makes worldly wisdom foolish, but the foolishness of God saves. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Or the intelligence of the intelligent I will thwart or confound or frustrate. And here Paul is quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 29, 14, to show how God has rejected all attempts for mankind to know God and to be reconciled to him through man's own wisdom or his intelligence or some other means of his own. And in, in that chapter, Isaiah was prophesying that Jerusalem was going to be besieged, but they weren't going to suffer harm. But the prophets and the wise among them wouldn't understand what God was doing. Their hearts were hardened and they were far from God. So God prevented them from understanding his plans. He thwarted their wisdom. And Paul applies that same principle to his day. God has determined to frustrate or thwart the wisdom of those who claim knowledge since their hearts are also far from God. Where is the one who is wise, Paul says in verse 20? Who's the wise? These are those who were clever, had a, a philosophy of life or worldview that explained everything. And in Paul's day, you had the, the Stoic and the Epicurean and the Sophist and the Philosopher. But which of the schools of thought of their day concluded in all their thinking that the cross was the way to God? How about other systems of thought? How about communism? Did communism think its way to the cross? Or democracy? In their thinking and postulating, did the postmodernists arrive at the cross for reconciliation with God? Paul asked, where's the scribe? Where's the expert in the Jewish law? 
Did they find their way to the cross of Christ? Where's the debater of this age? These were the, the intellectuals, the public speakers who, who proclaimed wisdom in the public square or any of the thousands of podcasters today and debaters on social media. In all their reasoning and their arguing and their debating, did they find their way to the cross? In all their best thinking, none of them arrive at the wisdom and power of God in the cross to save souls. And then there's people like you and me, maybe, maybe like you and me, we're not philosophers, we're not especially bright, we're not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I just didn't know how to know God. I didn't know. How, do you be, how can you be made right with God? I actually didn't even think about it very much. I don't know how about you before you knew Christ. Some of you are here. You don't know Christ yet. You think about it. Maybe you don't think about it. Well, I don't know why you're here. Why are you here thinking about it? How do you become right with God? I don't know. It was, I wasn't especially wise or clever or intelligent, and I am still not. That boy, I say that boy is about as sharp as a bowling ball says Foghorn Leghorn. I thought it had to have something to do with going to church. Doesn't that make sense? You go to church, there's something about being in church. Maybe something about good works outweighing bad works. I don't know. Turns out it's nothing about any of those things. We cannot earn a right standing with God on our own. Verse 20, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's exposed the futility of all their so-called wisdom by providing salvation through a means that none of them would have come up with. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The wisdom of God determined that the world through its wisdom would not know him. The cross eliminates all boasting and all patting ourselves on the back about how clever we were to save ourselves and figure it out. Or to make ourselves right with God. The cross eliminates all pride, all of it. Paul later says, starting in verse 27, same chapter, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in ourselves. Paul said it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's the sovereign good pleasure of God, Paul says that when the word of the cross, this so-called foolish message is preached to save men and women and boys and girls who hear it and believe it. 
and the means of salvation is faith. Believe, he says, those who believe. Not work. Not strenuous effort. He says trust. Humbly place your faith in the one who was crucified for your sins and abandon any other means of trying to find a way and earn it yourself. You cannot gain favor with God in your own flesh, in your own strength, in your own work. Simply hear the message of the gospel and believe and be saved. It pleases God to save those who come to him by faith. God makes worldly wisdom foolish, but it's the foolishness of God that saves The third principle we see is this. God doesn't cave to give you what you crave. Rather, God knows and meets your greatest need. What did the Jews crave? What did they demand from Jesus? Look in verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Time and again, the Jews said that they wouldn't believe Jesus unless they saw the spectacular sign, unless they saw some kind of sign and wonder from Jesus. They demanded that he authenticate himself. They wanted to see his credentials. It's really no different from many people today. Show me. Okay, I hear what you're saying, but show me. Reveal yourself to me. Prove it, and then I'll believe. Matthew 12, 38, the Jews said, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. John 2, 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things, Jesus? John 6, 30, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And so on and so on. Jesus was not going to be their personal genie in the lamp. He was not going to be your trained little puppy who will do tricks on command. But if they were paying attention, they would have known that Jesus performed hundreds of miracles in their midst. Raising people from the dead, stopping a storm with his words, walking on the water, casting out demons, healing all manner of diseases. He wasn't hiding all of this, he was doing it in their midst. But still they wouldn't believe The problem wasn't that Jesus wasn't doing enough signs, is that their hearts were hard. They didn't want to believe. That's the case with many today. Maybe some of you in this room. The Jews demanded signs. What did the Greeks crave? The Greeks sought wisdom. The Greeks looked for the grand and the lofty rhetoric from those who can impress us with their persuasive arguments and their oratorical abilities and their superior intellect. Impress us with your novel ideas. But the word of the cross is not at all about those things. It is not at all about haughty intellectual arguments and lofty rhetoric. It's not about that. It never was. It's a simple message that can be grasped by the good student 
and the poor student, and even by young children. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. We preach the word of the cross, and this was a message that was absolutely scandalous to the Jews. It was a stumbling block to them. There's no way that this Jesus could be the Messiah. There's no way that Jesus could be Son of God. He was crucified. He was a failure as a Messiah. And in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, in our law, the law of God, it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The Messiah wouldn't be cursed. He would be our glorious deliverer. Our prophet Isaiah told us what to look for, Isaiah 9, 6-7. Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Kingdom, Righteous Government, King, Throne of David. Not a crucified Messiah. If we don't talk about crucifixion in polite society, it would be like exalting the atomic bomb or the guillotine or gas chambers or some other means of death. We don't talk about crucifixion. A crucified Messiah is a stumbling block to Jews. It's a contradiction. But it's only a contradiction if you don't know your Old Testament prophets. That same prophet, Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, talks very clearly about the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come and he would suffer. His appearance would be marred beyond human semblance, despised, rejected by men, stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities like a lamb led to slaughter, The Messiah had to be crucified. That was the central part of God's eternal plan of redemption. Apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament animal sacrifices. He was the final, perfect, sinless, without blemish Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. One final sacrifice to end all future sacrifices. Last one. Perfect one. Hebrews 9.26 He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 10.12 But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The plan of God was the death of his son so that we might live. And the crucified Christ was folly to the Gentiles. It was ridiculous. What is this? Verse 24, but to those who are called, those who are saved by God, both Jews and Greeks who believe. This crucified, buried, and resurrected Christ is the very power of God and the wisdom of God. This folly, this foolishness, this word of the cross is the means and the power of God to save and transform sinners. Here's a word for 
those of you who are already Christians. Just because there are many people who see this message of the gospel as folly, we mustn't be timid about proclaiming it and preaching it and heralding it and sharing it with those who need to hear it. Don't be timid. God is still using this message to open blind eyes and to save souls, just like he did for you. He didn't stop doing that. God is still opening the eyes of the blind through the work of his spirit and transforming hearts, so do not be intimidated by mockers or potential mockers. Have compassion on their soul. This is what they need, and they don't know it. Don't sit in judgment on them. You were probably the same way at one time. They're not mocking you so much as they're mocking God. Pray for them. Plead for them. Plead for their soul. Because they're going to mock and ridicule their way all the way to judgment. Love them enough to pray for them. And share the good news. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, a lot of us in this church memorized this verse over the last couple of weeks, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is the message that saves. It's the power of God to save souls. Don't be ashamed of that message. And then verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, this, of course, does not mean that there is actual foolishness in God, or that there's foolishness in anything that God teaches or reveals in the Scriptures. It means this. It means that this thing that the world counts as folly, this foolishness of God turns out to be the highest wisdom. The word of the cross is the wisdom of God that reconciles sinful people to a holy God and utterly transforms lives and builds a church and creates a loving community and reaches out with love to the lost and the poor and the forgotten and the unlovely. It's the wisdom of God. And it's a powerful work of a powerful God to create a community that works and loves and grows in the power of the Spirit. To some, the message of the gospel is foolish. But it's only foolish until the Spirit of God opens their eyes and humbles them and calls them and opens their blind eyes and enlightens their minds and hearts and saves their souls. And then they realize, like so many of us, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds 
which mar the chosen one, bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the glorious wisdom, the almighty power of God that works through this word of the cross. Thank you, God, that while so many mock, so many look at this message as foolishness, you are the same God who still loves them and seeks them and pursues them, softens their heart, opens their eyes, helps them to see the glory of the cross. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in, who walked in this morning in this room who doesn't yet know you as Savior, Lord, would you draw them? Would you open their eyes? I pray, Lord, that whatever soil they walked in, Lord, I pray that you would soften and till and turn over that soil so that the seed of the gospel would grow, take root, flourish, in their hearts. Lord, thank you that one day we're going to see you face to face. I pray that everyone who is in this room and who is listening would know you and see you as Savior and not as judge. Do your powerful work in our hearts, I pray. And may we thank you, thank you, thank you, for all eternity, for what you have done for us out of your love for sinners. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.